Welcome everybody to our latest podcast. This is January 2019 in the series for Genocide Memorial Day. This year's UK Genocide Memorial Day was looking at genocide as a tool of colonialism. And we're very honoured to have with us today Sanju Hira from the International Institute for Scientific Research and the Decolonial International Network, talking about his work on reparations. And today we'll be talking about the case for reparations in the context of genocide and colonialism. Sanju will introduce himself a little bit more in a, in a moment, but he is one of the uh, very key decolonial activists and thinkers who's developed the concept of decolonizing the mind, uh, which is abbreviated to DTM, uh, which will have many aspects that impact on the conversation that we're having today. Thank you, Sanju. Thank you, Asu. Thank you, Islamic Human Rights Commission, one of the founding members of the Decolonial International Network. So uh, my name is Sandu Hira. My real name is Deo Baburam. Um, Sandu Hira is my pen name. I was born in the former Dutch colony in South America called Suriname and migrated with my parents uh, to Holland where I live uh, and work and do my activist work. Um, I developed uh, the theoretical framework of decolonizing the mind that looks into how our mind has been enslaved by uh, colonialism and the mechanisms that um, goes with the uh, colonization of the mind and of course with decolonizing the mind as a, a liberation philosophy. Now let me start by taking up the issue of GMD, uh, genocide and reparation and why this link is so important. Um, if you have a massive uh, form of injustice where uh, communities are uprooted, are oppressed, are killed uh, uh, in, 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 and oppressed in many ways, uh, then that social justice needs to be addressed, not only by stopping the oppression, uh, by stopping exploitation, but by addressing the effects of the genocide. If you don't address the effects of it, that means that you haven't learned anything from what the genocide is about. So I'll go later on into what our DTM, Decolonial Demand, Decolonizing the Mind concept of genocide is. But uh, let me go into the reparation aspect because reparation means different things. It means repairing the damage that has been caused by genocide. Um, and repairing that damage has a material component. Obviously, if you've damaged something and you have to repair it, it will cost money. You won't uh, do it without uh, um, paying any penny. So there is a financial and material aspect, is it? Of it, but it has many more other aspects which are mentally, which are institutional, and therefore you need to understand how this institutional um, mechanism works uh, in carrying out the genocide so you know where the reparation starts. In order to uh, 
understand the different aspects uh, related to genocide, you have to understand that the nature of colonialism that perpetuated the genocide. And colonialism has five dimensions. There's an economic dimension, a social dimension, a political dimension, a cultural dimension, and a geographical dimension. The economic dimension is the extraction of wealth from the colonized, by the colonizer, and transferring it to the world of the colonizer. And extraction of wealth can be found in different forms, and the brutal form is slavery. And colonialism started 500 years ago with the enslavement of the indigenous people of the Caribbean. That's the first one, which uh, the island of, which now called Haiti and uh, 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 Dominican Republic, the Spaniards called it Hispaniola and the indigenous people called it Haiti. Now in Haiti, the Spaniards uh, used a, a tool that the Belgium used in the Congo when they forced blacks to uh, produce rubber and uh, the Spaniards forced the indigenous people to collect gold nuggets and if they were uh, have set quotas on them and if they didn't meet the quota they cut off their hands and that system was used in the Congo by the Belgians and uh, the, the massive killing and people died in huge numbers in the Caribbean and later on in the rest of Northern and Southern America, which today now hardly has a indigenous population, except in the United States, Canada, there are smaller groups. Uh, in, in, in Bolivia, there are larger groups in Guatemala, but many other parts have been uh, eradicated from uh, so uh, the transatlantic enslavement that followed after the enslavement of the indigenous people that enslaved hundreds of millions of people, uh, they took some 12 million from Africa, they kidnapped them and for every person who left Africa, two to five died on the way. So only in Africa, uh, 24 to 60 million people died as a result of the organization of the kidnapping of the transatlantic enslavement. From the 12 million, 2 million died during the Middle Passage and sea, and the 10 million that arrived, um, for generations, their children has been enslaved. And enslavement is a form of destroying people's life. It's not just extracting wealth. Uh, they're destroying their culture, for example, the name. They even stole their names, the names of the Africans were changing the names of the masters. So the economic dimension is important. So if you say you have stolen the wealth and the labor and the uh, 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 gold and silver and rubber, you've stolen it from these people, it is just and logical, even in the, in the logic of capitalism, to repay those who have uh, got their wealth stolen. So for that element of returning what you have stolen in terms of products and labor, it's a just thing to do. 
And so you see the link between economics, genocide and reparations, because uh, you don't see genocide only as the killing of people. That is the result of a system of institutions, and in this case of the economic institution. Now, the second dimension of colonialism is a social dimension, where colonialism introduced the idea of organizing human beings across lines of race and ethnicity. And by organizing people in this way, and by organizing mass migrations, because they didn't took white people to labor in the Americas, uh, they could have done it, and they have used indentured white labor at the beginning of colonialism on a very small scale. But the plantation system and the world economy that arose of that plantation system because of finance, trade, uh, staple markets, uh, uh, shipping, uh, the whole infrastructure of the world economy was created with the triangular trade and uh, colonialism from Africa, uh, the Americas, and Europe. And that system of organizing uh, social relations along the lines of race, ethnicity, uh, color, uh, had the effect of dehumanizing the people of color. They were seen as subhumans, or in fact, as animals, because in slavery, the Africans were registered in the book accounts of the plantations alongside the chickens uh, and the pigs and the cows. So literally, they were not regarded as human beings. They were regarded as cattle. And treating people in that way and organizing social relations in that way is such a grave uh, injustice that if you want to address it, it means that you have to address the legacy of that system of social relations today. If you see that that's the way social relations are being organized in America, for example, apartheid existed until the 1960s. So redressing that system of apartheid, which one aspect of it was the introduction of affirmative action as a law um, to compensate for the unequal terms under which people were living for centuries. Um, so reparations here in Europe, where people are still organized along the lines of race, ethnicity, religion, uh, in such a way that the Christian whites are on the top and uh, 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 non-wise, uh, non-Christians are at the bottom. That system exists today, and reparation has to address that. So if you have a policy of affirmative action now, uh, which, which is needed in Europe, that is part of reparations. Affirmative action can't be few outside of the context of reparations. The third dimension of colonialism is a political dimension. And politics is about power, how power is used to administer and control communities. And um, the resistance against that control is the counter power. Uh, 
So politics has been used and political power has been expressed in brutal violence. And that is where genocide then took its most uh, overt form. That is a form in where the political machinery, which is the army, the governmental apparatus with its minister, the army is the executing part of it. But the, the policy making of saying we are now going to kill, let's say, the Jews or the Bosnians, uh, these are political decisions. They don't come from some somewhere. It, it's a conscious political decision that then a particular branch of the political power, which is uh, the army, uh, intelligence services, then carry out. So if the political institutions has been used in carrying out uh, the actual act of genocide, Reparations means that you call these people, uh, you hold these people into account. Uh, so, uh, even if they are dead, by putting out the truth about who was responsible in developing the policies of genocide, who was responsible in carrying it out, and I'm not talking about the soldiers at the lowest level, I'm talking about the generals and those who direct the army, uh, holding them into account and telling the story of who is responsible is part of reparation, is part of holding people into account. And not only people, but institutions, which are state institutions. For example, um, the, the Iraq war was a form of genocide. I mean, up to almost a million people have been killed in Iraq by the whole uh, war. And that war was organized by Bush and Blair and, and supported by uh, Western governments and their allies. And if we talk about genocide, these people live today. So we have to reparations about how to hold these people accountable for what they've done. It's part of mental reparation. <coughs> then there is a cultural dimension of colonialism. And that cultural dimension deals with knowledge production. How is knowledge produced that affirms the inferiority that the social relations has expressed in organizing uh, human relations into inferior and superior human relations and then use political power in maintaining uh, that system uh, that has an economic function that extracts wealth and then have the cultural system, cultural institutions, developing the narrative to justify it. And this narrative are not just uh, uh, idiotic uh, narratives uh, uh, in the way the Nazism has been portrayed, where the Jews were proclaimed to be untermenschen, subhumans. How crazy could they be? But that knowledge was produced by white men at the foundation of Western science, which is called the Enlightenment. If you read the founders of European philosophy, Hegel, Kant, Hume, Locke, Voltaire, all the major philosophers were right, just outright racists that uh, argued 
that black people were inferior uh, to whites and that whites were at the top of the human ladder of humanity. And their knowledge has been translated into uh, anthropology, into sociology, into uh, the social sciences uh, in, in different ways. Um, so reparations about repairing that uh, constructed lies, that knowledge system, repairing a, 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 a human knowledge system that gets rid of this concept that has been produced uh, in, in the West. So reparation um, is, has this cultural dimension. And then we have to realize that reparations was a global system. We live now in a global world that is interconnected in every possible detail. In communication, in transportation, in economics, in social relations, in infrastructure, you name it. That global system didn't exist before colonialism. We have regional systems which were very elaborate in, in Asia, uh, in the Americas, uh, but uh, they weren't interconnected, these continents. So genocide became something of a global nature. You carry out the genocide, for example, the Haitian Revolution where people fought for their freedom. The suppression of that revolution was not just done by France. All the major uh, Western power were involved in carrying out the atrocities in Haiti during the liberation struggle. The Iraq war was not just an American thing in Iraq. It was supported globally by the um, uh, lackeys of uh, US imperialism. So, Genocide has this geographical dimension that it's planning, carrying out and support in rationalization uh, is not limited to a particular country. So that's why if we talk about uh, reparations, we talk about, we talk about all these five dimensions of colonialism where reparation uh, should be applied to. If I can just ask a couple of questions because I think this is something that's comes up a lot and your analysis is really good in breaking down actually the need and the types of reparations but for example some there's a an ongoing i'm trying to summarize quite a few uh, questions into one uh, an ongoing if you like get out clause of well things happened a long time ago so why have there been reparations after the holocaust but not for transatlantic slavery well that was a long time ago and i know you're going to explain in quite a lot of detail how actually you can come up with figures for some of those things but even before that that's one of the questions another one sort of included into that and uh, there's this kind of dichotomy between the present by which i mean about the last hundred years 70 to 100 years and what is often said to be the very far past which is 500 years ago and 400 years ago obviously people like ourselves see this as a continuum but this argument often comes up about a practicality and b uh, critical thinking so you mentioned about the sort of the cultural and theoretical and the enlightenment the role of the enlightenment actually in, in bringing about justifications for genocide but then there's a lot of people that well you know what are we going to do if we don't have hegel and we don't have Kant? we've kind of you blanket we called them races but you know hegel got us marks 
what, what are we going to do? Are we getting rid of Marx completely? Are we getting rid of Hegel completely? Even people would say Hannah Arendt, who is our recent thinker. A lot of progressives quote her, I have quoted her. A lot of decolonial thinkers quote her, but at the same time she had some incredibly racist things to say, particularly about the Aboriginal people in Australia. So how do we negotiate that body of knowledge where even some of the things we're arguing about come out from, as well as this idea that things in the past that are just as awful as they are, are too impractical, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, I know part of that you'll deal with later, but maybe sort of a All summary right. just now before right. we go forward. Well, okay, let's let's take first the first issue of we criticise the founders of enlightenment for being racist, but they have made other contributions to knowledge production. How do we view that? Is it that we say these are racist and that's all? Or uh, should we acknowledge that they have made a valuable contribution in other fields? Well, my first counter-argument against this method of reasoning is that if somebody says something idiotic, that means that if he says something else, you don't immediately accept it. So you look critically of the other things they have said. Because uh, normally if an idiot says something, the first thing you would come to your mind, and say, oh, what a great guy because he said all the other things. You are safe and okay, what did they say on the other levels that might be maybe as idiotic as they said on this level? So we take an extra critical look at the contribution rather than saying, oh, they said something else, but the rest was great. We look at the rest. Well, let's take philosophy, right? The development of Western philosophy in three centuries has to do with the relationship between knowledge production and religion. Christianity created an atmosphere in the so-called Dark Ages where science was seen in opposition to religion. There were other religious systems where science was not seen as opposition. Islam is an example, Hinduism is an example. So, the fight that thinkers, philosophers, had to engage in Europe was in how to deal with the relationship between religion and science. And then the three major steps that were taken by these philosophers, uh, basically, if I take Hume, for example, uh, and, and going back to Francis Bacon, uh, uh, Descartes, where they start to argue that knowledge doesn't come from the text of the Bible, but knowledge comes from reasoning. So, uh, your own individual reasoning can create knowledge. And then comes the first step of David Hume, who says, but that creation of knowledge goes through experience. So you do experiments, and through experience, you get insight into how the world functions. So 
reasoning is done on the basis of facts, not on the basis of belief. The second thing is, then come Kant. And Kant says, well, I can observe things, but that doesn't mean I understand the facts. So if I take a bottle of water and I put it down, the water falls, then Hume says, okay, science tells me now that if you take a bottle of water, the first time, the tenth time, it will still fall. That is what experience has told me. But then Kant says, but you don't know why it falls. So Kant says, in order, in order to get knowledge of insight, in, you, don't, you don't need only facts, you need theories. You need analysis of how to understand the facts. That was the second step. And then the third step is what Hegel brought in. Said, but if your theory is sound, then you can predict that the 11th time the, uh, the water will fall on earth, but when you're in the sky, because you understand gravity, that theory will predict that it could go up. So these are the three basic steps in articulating how knowledge is being formed. And then comes Kant. August Kant, the founder of uh, European sociology, and says, but look, um, this kind of reasoning brings us to the level in which we make a distinction between the observer and the observe. We separate object and subject of knowledge. So we bring in the idea of objectivity. And the idea of objectivity means that when we create knowledge, it is not related to our specific position and where we stand. So a white man and a black man will produce the same knowledge. Men, male and women will produce the same knowledge. He's talking about, uh, uh, and he pulls out, and that's very important, ethics from knowledge. So he says, knowledge has no ethics. It's objective. This, And knowledge is about true and false. And they pull out the idea of good and bad, right or wrong. And that is done because they have to struggle with Christianity. So if we evaluate the Western knowledge system, then we should evaluate it with other knowledge systems. And here's the thing, the Western knowledge system proclaimed the uniqueness of knowledge. So Western knowledge was true science. And non-white peoples were not able to be rational. They were not thinking with the head, but with other parts of the body. So uh, the proclaimant of Western knowledge as being the rational and science being Western, and I'm not even talking about racism, right? I'm talking about this idea that other knowledge systems are invalid in itself. That idea is indeed a racist idea, but also a stupid idea. Because um, by pulling out ethics from knowledge, you suddenly then uh, hide the ethics somewhere. You, you'd think you pull it, but it is there. And then your knowledge becomes not a universal knowledge, but becomes a colonized knowledge. Let me give you one example. If you describe the history of colonialism, how does it how is it being described? It is described as the voyage of Columbus, as an act of discovery, 
as a scientific enterprise seeking out the knowledge about the new world. So what you do, you use a term called discovery. That's the term you use. In the DTM knowledge we develop, which is a critique of Western enlightenment, not only because of its racism, but because of its invalid knowledge. So we say these great thinkers were not great. They were in fact some things, very stupid things. Uh, I'll, I'll give you examples of the stupid things, but let me give. So in DTM we say, in knowledge has five aspects contained in the idea of a concept. A concept gives you an idea of how the world looks like. One aspect is terminology. So if you call the genocide, we will call it the genocide of the indigenous people by the Spaniards, but Spaniards call it the, the discovery, that's where the ethics already lies. It gives a false picture of reality. There was no discovery. There was genocide. So the second aspect is the analysis. We analyze genocide. They analyze the voyage. They are putting the maps and say, look, here is India, here is America. The guy got lost and, and, and that's, that's the whole story. And we say, look, there is the gold, there is the people, there is the weapons, there is the army. This is how they committed genocide. This is a different analysis. The third thing in a concept is the facts you select. So they select, they leave out facts which doesn't fit the narrative of discovery. So they leave out genocide. But we include all the facts, all the facts, also the facts that he was searching for a road, a, 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 a sea route to India and got lost, which is not a great thing. Getting lost is not a great thing. It's a stupid thing. You can't read the maps. You don't know anything about the world. And then you you end up somewhere uh, so we put in all the facts we put in the facts of the greed of columbus we put in the fact of the enslavement that he wrote in a diary of the first seven timers uh, so columbus was not a great great guy just as hegel was not a great guy and Kant even and all these great philosophers not a great they produced knowledge which was not great which was invalid and then the second thing, the, the fourth thing of the concept is all these fact analysis and terminology put you into a broader theoretical framework. And their framework is modernity, the rise of modernity, the rise of science. We say, looking at world history, colonialism is the decline of humanity. Because before humanity, there were great civilizations producing knowledge which were more valid in mathematics, in cultural analysis. And this, the last element, we think that ethics is part of knowledge. Knowledge is not only about right or wrong, about false or true, but also about right and wrong. So the, the story of Columbus is about right and wrong, not only about true or false. Did he find the root or did he, didn't he find the root? That's not a question. Did he committed genocide or was it wrong or wrong to commit genocide? These are elements of knowledge. So if we now analyze Hegel, Kant, and we look at these so-called great philosophers, it is not because of the racist quote. We think they had produced infallible knowledge also in the other field, not only in the field of race relations. They produced nonsense. And the best example is Descartes. Descartes is seen as the founder of Western philosophy because he introduced the idea that knowledge is being created by the mind and not by looking at the Bible.
And here is the idiotic thing of, of Descartes. Descartes says, how do I know if I have knowledge? And he said, I start by doubting the knowledge. He's calling it hyperbolical doubt. I doubt in the extreme. I doubt whether I exist. Here's the idiotic thing. How can you doubt that you exist? You can doubt whether you're here or there. Am I upstairs or downstairs? That is what you can doubt. What, that, what does it mean to say, I doubt my non-existence? What does it mean, I might not exist? It's just idiotic. In other philosophies, they had this element to called common sense. So if somebody comes and tells you, I, I might not exist, he would put you into an asylum. This common sense, they tell you this is nonsense by doubting your existence. You know, you could doubt your place where you're not, but not your existence of what is idiotic to say, I don't know if I exist. So this is not a great philosophy. If you know that in other societies, valid philosophies were produced, which were discarded. In, in, in the Chinese philosophies, African philosophies, Islamic philosophies, Hindu philosophies, uh, uh, in the indigenous people of, of, of the Americas, they all had philosophies, theories. And decolonizing the mind is about looking at the theories and that's why we say our critique of the philosophers of the Enlightenment is not just that they were racist, it was that they produced nonsense. And presented this as knowledge, as a science. So I think my second question, which was about the long past and the near past, yeah. actually leads in quite nicely to a conversation about, firstly, the detractors of the idea of reparations, but then subsequently exactly why those are also nonsensical arguments. Yeah. So I've written a book on reparations called 20 Questions and Answers on Reparations. And I list 16 arguments against reparations. I'll go through some of them. But the most interesting thing is, each of these arguments are being used against us. I say, well, reparations, you know, uh, it's just so long ago, uh, uh, people have died. How, how can you hold, hold people accountable for things that their parents have done and their foreparents uh, have, have done? Um, uh, uh, why would you give money to corrupt uh, leaders in these countries now? Uh, they will waste the money. Uh, there are more important issues in the world than reparations. And um, you should address modern day slavery and not slavery of the past. Um, you, you, a person can't in, inherit the guilt of the perpetrators of the crime and you can't inherit uh, uh, the victimization of, of, of the idea of that. You don't inherit uh, that victimization. So they are all arguments against it. I'll address these arguments, but I ask myself first the question, why were these arguments not used in the cases when reparations were paid? No discussion about it. For example, reparations were paid by the Haitian people to France. Haitian had a revolution in 1904. It ended in the victory of Haiti. And then 
the Europeans, with the support of the Americans, organized a blockade of the island and threatened to invade the island and enslave the people again. Unless they paid reparations to the French plantation owners. And eventually the Haitian leaders decided to pay and they paid for 125 years from 1825 to 1840, 1947. In those 125 years, nobody questioned in France, why should we pay reparations? Is it just? In the abolition of slavery, France, Britain, Holland paid reparations to the criminals of a crime. Slavery is a crime. The criminal got reparation, the plantation owners got reparation. I think David Cameron is uh, for parents had got reparations so long ago, but they inherited it. You can't inherit the guilt, apparently you can inherit Absolutely. the property. Yeah, inherit so the money was no problem. The arguments were not used there. In China, the British, with the support of the rest of the West, invaded China in the two opium wars. They were ordinary drug dealers. So drug dealers invaded China and forced the Chinese to pay reparations to the drug dealers. Suppose uh, uh, Escobar, you know, was doing the same in the United States with an army, forcing the United States to flood the country with drugs. You would, you would say this impossible, but it happened, really happened. So Indonesia paid reparations to Holland, not so long ago even. Not even so long ago. After the War of Independence, the Dutch demanded that they pay 6.5 billion and they paid 4 billion between wow. 1950 and 1956 to Indonesia under the pressure of the Americans. So how come there's, there's no discussion about arguments against reparations? That's a, so everybody who wants to talk about arguments against reparations, I would say, let's start taking these arguments for all reparations. Not just the reparations we are asking for reparations of the genocide for colonialism. And then when we address these reparations, the first question you need to ask whether reparation is something to be considered is how to deal with historical injustice. And if you say, I don't want to deal with historical injustice because it is so long time ago, that means that you don't want to deal with the legacy of that injustice. And if the legacy is economic, social, political, cultural, geographical, which it is, and you don't want to deal with it, then you become part of the perpetuation of it. You see? So that's the reason why this discussion about genocide is not even about the past. It's about the future. It's about how do we deal with the legacy of colonialism. Shouldn't we have a, 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 a genocide memorial museum? Shouldn't we change our educational system to educate people about the magnitude of the genocides which have occurred in the 500 years? Shouldn't we say that the racism which is part of the system should be eradicated? That is what reparations is about. So we're not talking about something that 
was there long ago and we need to address it. We, we need to address the legacy of the perpetuation of that system in order to build a world that is free from it. And, and that's why I think uh, all these arguments against reparation are really invalid. I know you're going to explain how you've calculated certain figures. Uh, I think perhaps you're using the Belgian Congo example mm -hmm. or, or maybe transatlantic mm -hmm. slavery, uh, slavery yeah. whichever you prefer. But mm -hmm. before that, I just want to touch upon something in your book about immaterial reparations. Yeah. Because, for example, in the United Kingdom, when it was the, is it the 200th anniversary of the quote-unquote abolition of slavery by the British, mm -hmm. we had a sort of big speech used in commemorations by our great leader Tony Blair at the time. Uh, which was portrayed as an apology, but if you listen to it, there isn't much of an apology in there. And then this being touted as a kind of reparation. So you do talk about immaterial reparations and you've touched upon it in terms of what to do about the cultural uh, genocide, reparations for that change in how we think about uh, knowledge production. Where do those types, because there have been a few apologies, I think the Harper government gave apologies for the stolen generations in Australia, Justin Trudeau apologises every other minute while he's crying mm -hmm. and building pipelines through native lands while he's apologising to them for past atrocities. How do those fit in? I know I'm making, I'm being rather cynical in the way I'm portraying it, but ultimately people do take these seriously and they are, if you like, a usurpation of the narratives, some of the narratives that we're putting forward about immaterial reparations. So where do we place these in a, in a scale of progress, if there is a scale? Yeah. Well, first of all, we have to understand where does it come from? And why wasn't it there 40 years ago? And the answer to that question is because of our struggle. It is a success of our struggle that you get half-hearted apologies. It's not complete. It's not good. It's not even near to what should be done. But the fact that they can't ignore it and has to address it in some way to accommodate that idea that there was historical injustice not addressed is not because they wanted to do it. It's because we forced them to do it by the generations that have carried out the struggle to acknowledge historical injustice. That's point one. Second point is, even in the apology, it is unsincere and incorrect. Take the British, for example. The British pride themselves to be the great abolitionists. And they pride themselves because there was a big abolitionist movement here. Not comparable to other countries. France, Holland, all the countries didn't have this great uh, abolitionist movement. And the British were so proud of their abolitions that Eric Williams, one of the writers on abolition, a black uh, uh, scholar and uh, premier of uh, Trinidad, wrote that the British were so proud of the abolition that if uh, there was no slavery, they would invent slavery only to be to abolish it. So proud were they. In our DTM analysis, we say there are two types of abolition of slavery. One is the uncivilized one and the other is a civilized one. The British were part of the uncivilized abolition. What's the difference? First, in a civilized form, if you acknowledge 
that you committed a crime, then you don't award the criminal. The British paid the criminals. That is uncivilized. You pay the victims. So the British concept of abolition was an uncivilized concept where they pay the, the perpetrator of the crime rather than the victim. If you put an apology today, that is where you direct your apology first. Not say we shouldn't have done it and I'm so sorry. You should say, okay, look, this is what we have paid to the criminal and this is what we have should pay to the victims. I've come to the calculation to that, that this is not what Tony Blair did. None of them did it. Talking about how uncivilized it was. And Malcolm X had a great uh, uh, analogy. He said, if you stick a knife 10 inches into my back, and you pull it out to two inches, you haven't done me a great uh, uh, favor. So if you have abolished slavery, but you perpetuated colonialism, after slavery there was not a happy period of freedom, people were treated racist, the colonies were, were, were still uh, colonized, there was no freedom, there was fascism there. So the abolition of slavery should be put in a proper light, which was the uncivilized abolition of slavery. So, looking at all these things, we judge the integrity of it and the sincerity of it. And that's how we link it to reparation. <laughs> because then we come to the calculation part. Because Tony Blair should have said, look, let me start by applying capitalist economics to reparations. And the first thing that capitalist economics says is, if you put out an enterprise on land that is not yours, you should pay rent. So the British have put up enterprise. The British owned India, not the British, in fact, a, a group of entrepreneurs, because uh, this uh, society that ruled India for 100 years was a private company. The private company that ruled India rented India without paying any penny of rent. So what we do is delegitimize colonialism by introducing the concept that you should have paid rent. Calculate how much rent you have, should have paid per square meter uh, uh, for the whole period uh, that you occupied um, uh, illegally the land that was not yours. So everybody could do the calculation. You take up the square meters of, of India, of Congo, of whatever country. You, talk, you take the period of occupation and you put a price tag per, per square meter. Eh? And you don't have to put a price tag of today. You could take 1% of the price tag today. And then when you calculate it, you come into the uh, uh, multiple times the GDP of that country, of Britain or, 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 or Belgium or so. So that is the first dimension of calculation. And it's not about the calculation, it was is sh uh, uh, showing how illegal the occupation was in material terms. You put a tag on it. Second thing is, capitalism tells you if you go to a shop and you took a Coca-Cola bottle, you should go to the cashier and pay for it. You know, you can't just take it and, 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 and leave nothing there. So our scholars who are at, at, at the universities now should direct their energy in calculating how much rubber, coffee, cacao, uh, sugar has been taken out of those countries without their paying for it. In fact, uh, you know, they enslave, use enslaved labor, but it was not theirs to do. 
So calculate the product that has been stolen and take the uh, price and the quantity and uh, so that's the second dimension that tells you the magnitude of the theft that has been going on. The third is if you ask a painter to paint your house, capitalist logic says you should pay the man a wage or the woman a wage. So we go into the, all the enslaved labor and the forced labor and the underpaid labor and say how much should they have been gotten from unpaid or underpaid labor. So we calculate the hours the, uh, that are free and underpaid labor and uh, uh, what, what they should have gotten. Our scholars should do that in all these countries. So the, you have rent, you have unpaid labor, and then you have uh, compensation uh, for uh, damage that has been caused. So capitalist logic tells if you uh, cause injury to somebody, uh, in whatever ways, you should pay a compensation for the injuries. It's, it's codified in law here. So we use that same system and say you should compensate people for human suffering that you have caused. And uh, if you do that, then uh, you will see that the number of, uh, the, the magnitude of the injury that was caused was enormous because the number of people that are involved are enormous. In India, the British has organized famine by taking out the food from, from the Indians, putting it here while the climatological system created draft there that in former times the Indian kings and, 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 and rulers managed to deal with that draft by putting granaries and etc. But the British organized famine. 30 million people died. Transatlantic slavery, 400 to fifth, uh, 200 to 400 million victims. The magnitude of human suffering is enormous. So if you have that magnitude and put it in a figure, then you understand uh, uh, the scale of human suffering. So lastly, if you have a debt, the capitalist logic tells you you should pay interest, like the Haitian has done. They use 6% for the Haitians to pay reparations. So you have the renting of land. You have goods that has been taken and stolen without payment. You have labor that needs to be compensated. You have human suffering that needs to be compensated. You have interest that needs to be paid. If you calculate this all, then you'll see that the number at this time is 30 trillion. One billion, you know what it is. A trillion is a thousand billion. And a quadrillion is a thousand trillion. And the result of uh, the calculation I've made is that the Western countries, Belgium, Denmark, France, Germany, Italy, Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, England, America, needs to pay 321 quadrillion, which is 10,000 times their total GDP. If you know that that is the figure, you can imagine the scale, the impact of colonialism, 
which is in human lives and unpaid labor and stolen wealth is huge it's immense and then you can understand why they would not rather talk about it while in a civilized world we want to create for the coming thousand years this should be common knowledge that that 500 year period in human history has created tremendous uh, suffering and that is what we want to do in uh, putting up this new knowledge with the enlightenment couldn't put out and we will put out as this alternative knowledge system Sanji, thank you so much for this. Could you just give us maybe a summary of the resources, the books you mentioned, maybe websites that you have got your material on that people can go away and read more and find out more? Yes, uh, on, the, um, on the reparation things, there's a book which I've uh, published on reparation, 20 questions and answers. It's on Amazon, uh, you could, uh, could get that. In the IHRC bookshop. And in the IHRC bookshop. It is uh, part of a series that is being edited by you, my esteemed <laughs> editor in, uh, in the series, by Stephen Small, our brother in the University of California, Berkeley. So we are the editors of that series, Decolonizing the Mind, which has a lot of books in the series on different topics from Palestine to, uh, you know, uh, uh, Islam and, uh, and, and feminism. And uh, so the, our book series of Amrit Publishers, which is part of the Decolonial Network, um, then uh, the, the website of DIN, which is uh, uh, din.today, um, contains some, some educational material, videos and, and lectures and so on. Uh, we're going to set up the Decolonial University uh, from the Decolonial International Network. So this will be also a, a, a platform where you could learn with other people and engage in it. Um, and subscribe to the newsletters of DIN, uh, HRC and, and others, and then uh, you will get in touch with uh, all the material. Sanji, thank you again. Thank you for everybody who's been listening. Uh, just a reminder that this is one of a series of podcasts for the Genocide Memorial Day project. You can find all the others by going to genocidememorialday.org.uk or you can navigate via the Islamic Human Rights Commission website. So that's ihrc.org.uk you'll find the Genocide Memorial Day under projects, which is under what we do. Thank you again, and please do join us for our other and newer and extra broadcasts. Thank you.